Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This week, we return to Fort King. The fort was a focal point in the Second Seminole War. Then it was abandoned, the Seminoles burned it, they rebuilt it, and they abandoned it again. And then what happened to Fort King? Today, we'll find out. Ron Mosby, a board member for the Fort King Heritage Foundation, joins us to tell us all about what Fort King today is like and what visitors will see when they come to visit, as well as a good dose of the history behind the fort. Ron Mosby, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you. Ron, what was Fort King and why was it built? Well, there's actually two forts that were built there. The first one was in 1827, and then the second one was in 18. 37, and that's the one that we rebuilt. It was for the Second Civil Indian War and very pivotal in the garrison of forces and also provided like a central point for forts in Florida. The first one was built to minister the Treaty of Moultrie Creek, and that basically was there to protect the, the Seminoles. Um, they moved them into a designated area. And for a couple of years there, they were doing okay. And then it was uh, nothing new then, I guess, till now. The, the Army had severe budget cuts, and they had to desert the fort. The Indians actually left it alone because it was there to help them. Then later on, after they found out about the Indian Removal Act, they burnt that fort down. And then it was regarrisoned and rebuilt in 1837. And that's the fort that we show today that's on the property. That fort is exact replica, the scale, as the original fort sits in the same area, doesn't sit on the exact same footprint because the archaeologists wouldn't leave room in case they wanted to do any uh, additional digging at a later date. They didn't have to worry about the fort sitting right on top of what the original fort was. Fort King is best known for something that happened on the same day as Major Dade's command was wiped out on the way to Fort King. What was that? The Dade massacre and the same day that Osceola and his partners attacked Fort King, all, it was a coordinated attack over the same day. They attacked in the afternoon. Really, both those events helped kick off the Second Seminole Indian Wars. What was the purpose of Fort King? It was the Southern Command of the U.S. Army. And at one time, every regiment company in the U.S. Army went through Fort King. They either garrisoned there or they just passed through because there was a lot of roads that went in and out of Fort King. Where did the Fort King Road go? Went from here down to Tampa. It was a hub or center of the hub. Um, Went out to different forts. Of course, at a later date, there's more forts built, and the idea was, of course, to make a day's march and you could have some protection. Fort King was built, if you look at it on the maps, it's kind of surrounded by other forts. Why did the Army need Fort King? The command there had realized that the Seminoles were building up some forces, and they wanted some reinforcements and asked for that, and that's the reason Dade was coming up to do that. And 
even after the attack from Osceola, they hadn't heard anything from Dade, so they didn't know that Dade had been attacked. When they were attacked, they didn't even realize that the Indian agent, Wiley Thompson and the commander, were outside the fort at the time. They closed up everything. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't that many soldiers there. What do we know about where the Indian agency was located in proximity to Fort King? Well, the Indian agency hasn't been at least that I know of has not been exactly located. They have some ideas of where they thought it was, and it might not have been within maybe a half a mile of the fort. But I really don't know because no one has ever said this is the exact spot. Do people also wonder about site selection for Fort King? We get a lot of people that say, well, how come you didn't, they didn't build the fort down by Silver Springs? And we say, well, it's flat swampy land. There's there's no tactical reason to put a fort there. There was a couple other springs. There's still a seep spring that's there from the original site. And that's one of the areas that they chose because it did have water available. Where do you think the Indian agency actually was located? It might have been over close to, there's a big Baptist church here near a street called Mary Camp. And I've been told that they thought it might be over that group. But then there's other people that say, no, it wasn't that far to the west. It more north. I have no idea on that, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I don't think he could have been too far from the fort because Wiley Thompson left his Indian agency and would go to the fort and work, and then he would walk back. Probably wasn't. Because, yeah, the heat, they used to take walks all the time. And uh, like I said, that's basically what the Seminoles waited for, was for them to come out of the fort Indian agency where it was at. Why was the location of Fort King very important? One of the reasons why it was important also was it set right centrally located in the state, and also they set right on the edges of the reservation. How did Fort King fare in the conflict? It fared okay as the first one they burnt down, but the second one was not really, I guess you'd say, directly attacked. A lot of the attack, even in the case of like Wiley Thompson, was they just basically waited for them to come out because the fort walls, they were built out of 18-foot logs. So it was a high fort to try to take over, and then it set on one of the highest points in around the area here in, in Ocala. So it was not a very strategic thing to try to directly attack the fort. So they waited for people to come out and ambush them. This, again, is the second Fort King. They abandoned it, and it was turned over to the settlers around the area here. Those settlers used it as the first county seat of Marion County, and then it was used as a courthouse for Ocala. And then at a later date, good people around the area decided they wanted the lumber, so they disassembled the thing and took some of it down. And from what we can tell, they used some of it to build. It was right around 1844, 45. 1842 is when they declared it over. Of course, you and I know that Seminoles never signed the treaty, so or any kind of agreement that the war was over. The army just kind of decided to go off. Why did they first abandon Fort King? It was mainly funding, and it was 1836. And then during that, after they abandoned it, that's when the Seminoles burned to the ground, and the army built it back again in 1837. So they didn't short-lived victory there. When they did build it back then, it was used for Indian Removal Act. It wasn't there to help protect the Indians. What's the story about its rediscovery? It's on record now. Archaeologist Gary Ellis, he still 
is involved with the fort. It was in 1998, and he found remnants of both things. In fact, I was out there one time, and he was showing me bags of burnt wood and soil, and it was just a line of it is what he found. So he found other things that verified it, but then along with that, they found remnants of the new fort. So they built a back pretty much in the same spot. Didn't look quite the same because the first one always had troubles with the money keeping making it exactly to the measurements at drawing show. But the second one was exactly to the drawing. The local officials had to acquire the land from private individuals, correct? Yes, it was actually owned by a uh, dentist, a doctor here in town. He had five boys that they raised on the land. It had been through some other people. It had agriculture. There was some farming done there. And of course, people from there at 14 down, it's kind of like a ridge, goes down towards Ocala. People find stuff all the time because that's where they did back. The fort itself was used mainly for some officers and things and for protection if there was an attack. Apparently, it was a timely intervention or this land might have been lost forever. Right. And that following year or two, I can't remember the exact date, but it was 99, 2000, somewhere, there were some people that got together and saved the area because it was going to be sold for condos. They started attempting to go through the National Park, National Historical Society, anything to try and save the land. And that's what kicked off the 14 Heritage. At that time, it's called Association. Now it's 14 Heritage Foundation. And that's with the different people that got involved over the next few years. They made it a National Historical Landmark. And then it sat there for another 10 years or so before the group actually formed and had enough backing to start actually reconstructing the fort. A lot of it at that time, too, was still until they purchased it between the city and county, came up pennies and parks and money to actually purchase the land. It was still under the ownership of the, the, the people that lived there. So there really wasn't a whole lot to do, except there was a marker that said this is a historical <laughs> site went on with it was that they started uh, putting some trails through the woods and with those trails came along some signs that explained some of the things that happened in that area. The signage went down by, which is one of the original water sources, there's a deep spring there. So you can walk the trail, it's about 1.23 miles, walk the trail through the area. There was a picnic area set up, and, and that's about all there was to do there because there wasn't anything else built. And the house that the people lived in, Dr. McCall, was starting to get renovated to use as a visitor center. And that's where some of the collection things have been found on the land and um, remnants of, of where the fort was before. You have a special event coming up this weekend. December 4th and 5th. What's that? This weekend is a reenactment of when Osceola and, and his band of buddies there uh, attacked Wiley Thompson and the commander of the, and, and some other people in the area were, were killed during the attack. And that's a reenactment of that. The other times is there's been a couple of times the Seminole tribe sends up a group of people that show hand-to-hand -hand combat that's been passed down. And they, they do an excellent job. They explain exactly what they're doing, the weapons they're using, why they use them, and then explain uh, about the use of teaching that same type of fighting to young kids and women also. What else do you have for visitors? Uh, well, we have a couple things set up, and 
one of the big things is that they worked with the county school system and the middle school's uh, history class comes out once a year. And last time before the COVID stuff, we had over 1,200 students come and the Seminole tribe had sent the people back up for them to do demonstrations. And then we had some, you know, settler pioneer things set up, you know, candle making, yarn, you know, weaving and things like that. So the kids could see. How important is it to have an actual reconstructed fort at the Fort King site? Oh, to get that constructed was very important because that became our pivot point to looking at that was what we considered phase one of what we were trying to do. And now that we built it, the fort and the blockhouses, and we've gone ahead and now our next project is a blacksmith shop. And the blacksmith shop has had all the archaeology finished on it. The city has sent out for quotes now that we know what we're looking for. And we're expecting to get some responses back in January and start building the blacksmith shop uh, at that point. What's the big picture? What's the grand plan for the Fort King site? The grand plan is, is we like to make it a teaching shop. In other words, we would have either small metal classes there or actually blacksmith classes, which we've had a lot of interest in, especially being around the horse country area. That's the main thing. And also, it's kind of gives people an idea of what blacksmith shop would look like at that time. The biggest operations, of course, would be during reenactments. But if we had classes set up, then they could do them you know, like a class a week or every other week or something. But right now, we're kind of feeling our way through uh, support from volunteers as how many times a, a week we could keep it open. Aside from defense, the blacksmith shop may have been the most important spot on the entire military reservation. Well, probably, you know, there's no hardware stores around, for one thing. Everything was all handmade and anything repaired, wagon wheels, stuff that normally you couldn't get anywhere because you're out in the wilderness. It used lots of nails, hinges, latches, those type of things that you didn't buy too much back then. A lot of times it was a meeting place. In fact, when the archaeologist was excavating the area there, not only did you find nails, pieces of hinges and things, but a lot of pieces of pipe, which aided people sitting around smoking, and some models. So I'm sure that it became kind of like a, like a, a store would, an area where people would come to meet and talk. Tell us more about the encampment that's set up by living historians before an event such as this. We've got some neat things here. we got a whole area that's set up with the Army that's in tents. People and kids can go see how the soldiers live and slept, and they have to cook their food right out there. They have a, a large cast iron cooking area, and they also have a, another area separate where the Seminoles are in camp, and the same thing there. They can actually go into the area and see how they lived and, and slept, and and a lot of them stay there overnight, uh, both nights. They come in on Friday night and Saturday night and leave on Sunday. But the people can see all that, and then there's different crafts around that they're doing. They even have axe throwing. There's kids' area where they do all kinds of kids' craft. There's also interactions with reenactors. There's one or two of them that have made smaller rifles just completely out of wood, and they get a bunch of them, and they show them how the soldiers would practice marching up and down and back and forth 
that's pretty funny because the kids actually listen. <laughs> and they get to meet people in the Seminole tribe. Then every so often they fire off cannon. We have a howitzer that they um, shoot off there and explain how they do that, who does what job, you know, loading the cannon and firing it. They have live music. Despite the unpleasantness from the 19th century, you have a good relationship with the Seminole tribe. Yes, and we have one of the Seminoles is on our board, the, ours meaning the 14 Heritage Foundation, and his Quentin Cypress is from the reservation, and he's on our board, so we get a lot of good input from them. Anytime that we, the, the city deals really close with them, and, and if there's something that we want to do and we're not for sure about, we always contact them and say, hey, is, you know, is it going to be the right thing or is it going to be offensive or can we work together on this? And they've been very good. In fact, they sent crew up and built a chicken house that is, that it's big. And they came and supplied all the labor and all the materials. So it's brand new for the reenactment. Some of the reactors on the Seminole side are not actual Seminole, but the Seminole accept them. Well, I haven't been involved in that much, but apparently they accept them because some of them have been around for a long time in different reenactments together. And I'd never been around reenactors at all until I got involved with uh, 14. And I found it interesting that some days they may be Indian reenactors and the next day they may be soldier reenactors. So they seem to do okay with it. Is it enough to have the reconstructed fort, or is there more that visitors should take in about this era? I don't think you get a feel for the area by just standing there looking at a fort. You have to understand how all those people interacted at that time, how much at that time you had to depend on each other because of where you were at. I think that especially I go back to is I get a kick out of a lot of the kids that come to visit and they have no idea that it's the way people lived or how they treated each other at the time. So it's, that's been very interesting. What part has your group played in all of this? Our group mainly trying to raise the funds to do the next phases of development. We also raised the money to build the fort originally. So I think just working on the funding, but sometimes it, it seems like it's moving slow, but there's reasons why it's moving slow. And it's not that anybody's holding it up. It's just that you have to do things to preserve the, the site and uh, the items that you're finding. So There's other parcels around that would be part if the city or county were able to buy them. What are some of these? That was area that we wanted because that's where we're planning to put a new visitor center. That piece was purchased. And also there was a, a lot of archaeology done on it. They found a, a lot of there. And a lot of that's being categorized now because we bought another parcel of land that has a house on it and we turned it into an archaeology center. The city did a very nice job of showing some of the items that were found. And it's also set up so that you can see people actually working, cleaning, and categorizing items. And you can ask them questions. Again, that's only open like a couple of days a week right now. We're hoping to open that up a little bit more. And where is that located in proximity? Oh, it's just right next to it. It sets right on 14th Street, and right behind it is the fort. That's the archaeology lab. What have you got planned for the visitor center? The visitor center, where we're thinking about, of course, things change over time, but right now it's planned to go on that one parcel of land that you uh, referred to, and there's a couple of reasons. One is 
safety of getting in and out of the lot, especially with the school bus kids, it's just not real conducive for that. So we've looked at this other area, which is a lot flatter and provides more parking. And the idea is that you would come in and come up to the fort on what would have been part of the original Forking Road. It was the trail that came from Tampa area on up to Ocala. The area that we have set aside for the visitor center, and the idea is that we would have a section of visitor center with the pioneer and soldier story and another whole section, which would be the Seminole side and their story, which we are being able write that portion and provide that to us, which we're, we're planning on it that way. The other thing is to have a lot of open area for traveling exhibits. We've had people contact us and say, hey, this would be a good exhibit for you too. And we go, we don't really have the room right now. And uh, of course, some of that stuff requires security systems too. And then classrooms on top of that for teaching. Is it a short walk from the projected visitor center up to the fort itself? Well, that's one thing we got to work out. Right now, it looks like it's a little bit of distance to walk from there to the fort. But what we're thinking is we provide some types of transportation, maybe like even now we have handicapped golf carts that we can take people around on the trails now. And we utilize those plus putting in probably some we've required the ADA type handicapped walkways for people also. It's all in part of the phase two plan to build out the other buildings. And we thought we decided not to build some of the outbuildings just yet because we think that the visitor center would be a place that you can see things that change all the time. Kind of like a lot of places, you know, if you go to the fort once or twice and there really isn't anything added, there's not much to go see again. But if you have a visitor center with uh, traveling and exhibits and, and classes and things, then you, you come back. Will scholars be able to visit the visitor center to do some research? Right now, we've started a small library on our own. We've had people donate books and uh, materials to that. But yes, our thought is we would like to have that. And also in the archaeology center to have off-site archaeologists and, of course, we're close to the University of Florida and work with them on having people do research there also. How have you gotten the word out about Fort King and why is it important to do so? It's been about nine years ago. We decided that we needed to start getting the word out of what we were doing at Fort King. We had some displays made and we volunteered to talk to anybody that would listen. And the thing that amazed me, and I'm not from this area, was the number of people that grew up here. They had no idea that Fort King was there. They always thought that the uh, name came from a, a school here in town. <laughs> but it was just interesting to find that. Now, we've done that enough times, and also there's been a lot of good publicity from the county and city that we go to shows now, and a lot of them go, oh, yeah, I was out there whenever. Yes, I've seen this. So I think that was a big surprise to me, but it's uh, it's starting to turn around. Ron, how did you get involved in Fort King and its preservation? A guy that I worked with 20-some years retired. And then a year, about a year and a half later, I retired. And I got a call the same day I retired. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, I, I don't know. I hadn't even really thought about it. And he said, well, he said, we're going up to 14. They're going to start making trails around through the woods. We'll be marking trees and cleaning out brush and 
stuff like that. I said, yeah, sure, that sounds interesting. And I didn't have anything else planned. And so that's how it got me into it. And then, of course, I started working with some people that were historians that started telling me about the fort. And I started doing some reading and it just kind of went from there. I'm on the board of directors. What is your hope for the public coming to visit? Come and see the work that people have done to get it to this point. Plus, we just received a grant about a year ago and we redid all the signage all the way around and inside the fort and outside in the visitor center. Very nice job. And it explains a lot about some of the things we just talked about here today. One thing I didn't bring up was there's a site there as an acre of land owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution. That's where the soldiers that died at the fort were buried. They're no longer there. They were taken at the end of the war and moved up to the National Cemetery in St. Augustine. And there was 34 of them there. And about, well, before the COVID stuff, a couple of years ago, they had a, a nice ceremony where they remembered all the soldiers that um, died there at the fort. You can walk down to that area. It's down near the archaeology center. And like I said, you can walk around and the rails all through there. And then you can see a where we're going to be starting the other projects. And that wraps it up. Ron Mosby, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.